You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Welcome back to Aspie's special series, SBY's Tears, from Managing Crisis to Managing Process in Australia-Indonesia Relations since the fall of Suharto. In this episode, Dr. David Angle speaks to Bill Farmer, who was ambassador to Indonesia from 2005 until 2010. Their conversation explores some of the pivotal moments in the Australia-Indonesia relationship, including the signing of the Lombok Treaty, SBY's presidency, people smuggling and counter-terrorism. Bill, welcome to ASPI and thanks for participating in this podcast. It's a great pleasure. Well, you arrived in Jakarta in November 2005 and bearing in mind all that had happened during the tenures of your predecessors Rick Smith and David Ritchie, I assume you did so with some trepidation as well as great expectations. But as things turned out, you ended up serving in the job longer than anyone ever has and were invariably involved in various pivotal moments in our bilateral relationship. I'd like to start by asking you what they were and what they meant. Yeah, look, thanks, David. I think a crucial element of my period uh, there was certainly the SBY presidency. Here you had the first directly elected president and a man who had a particular view of the West, a particular view of his own country, and I'd say an initially very good disposition towards Australia. Uh, so the main thing I think about the SBY period was that that was eight years or ten years in the end of consolidation of the feeling of democracy. And that was, if nothing else, that was a really important element of that period. We certainly had some extremely important elements in events and decisions during that period. One was when Australia gave a refugee status to a number of Papuan asylum seekers that led to a quite difficult period, but then agreement on signature on the the Lombok Treaty on Security Cooperation. And that has become a sort of foundational document for a lot of cooperation, not only in military and police matters, but across the board in customs, immigration, fisheries, cooperation. Uh, Another perhaps less obvious pivotal moment really was the agreement by the two governments to continue and develop a joint sponsorship of regional initiatives. They'd started it, Australia and Indonesia, they'd started it in relation to irregular people movement. They developed that into other initiatives on counter-terrorism, on illegal fishing in the region. And that was important, I think, because it showed that while Australia certainly valued having Indonesia on side, because it's much much harder to say no to Indonesia than it is to Australia in regional terms. The Indonesians also saw value in having us on side in a joint process. And I think that's a really significant element of those five or ten years. I've used to think in a way that we were sort of strangely natural partners in some of these these things, but it clearly worked because it worked to the benefit of both countries. And we'll come back, I think, to several of those points that you've you've just touched on there. Before doing so, I want to talk a little bit about SBY and one area in particular that SBY's proponents and critics have debated about is Indonesia's economy during his presidency. Now, the former point to a track record of sustained growth and Indonesia's emergence as a G20 economy, the latter point to some stagnation and missed opportunities for necessary reform. What is your assessment? Look, I think SBY was lucky in a way 
in that if you compare the way in which Indonesia sailed through the global financial crisis with the way it did not sail through the, the Asian financial crisis, you draw some conclusions. And one was that essentially reform in the banking sector after the Asian crisis avoided the worst manifestations of that earlier crisis. I think one bank went to the wall in the GFC, but it's not too much of an exaggeration to say that Indonesia sailed through that. With a bit of help from Australia, we gave them some very large financial guarantees, but reforms that had already been enacted, I, I think, helped them through that. The second thing I'd say is that SBY certainly did have reformers on his team, especially the uh, Sri Mulyani, the, the finance minister, uh, Budiono, the university professor, he was coordinating minister for the economy and later vice president. Their approach would always have been to look for ways of promoting the economic growth, looking at reforming areas that badly needed it, like excessive subsidies of fuel and some of these inheritances from the past, which were really not conducive to the sort of growth that, that was necessary to essentially take up new people coming into the economy and giving them jobs. I think that when you look at the sorts of reforms that were made, you'd certainly say that Sri Mulyani did achieve some things in terms of reform of the tax office, of budget processes, of taxation arrangements. But she was always really likely to be dragged back by corrupt, inefficient, lethargic, self-interested elements in the oligarchy, in her own domain, in the government and so on. So it was always a hard task, but she did some things well. One of the major reforms that SBY set himself as a target was really to grow infrastructure within the economy so as to promote growth. And on that, their efforts really proved a serious dud. And so on that sort of basic criterion set up by them as a sort of foundational issue they did not deliver. You mentioned the Lombok Treaty as a key element in the history of our bilateral relations, but it was by no means the only important illustration of SBY's approach to international affairs and diplomacy. Mm. On the one hand, it was captured in his well-meaning, if meaningless, slogan, a thousand friends and zero enemies. But in practice, with the help of very able professional diplomats in the form of Foreign Ministers Hassan Muriyuda, Martin Atalagawa, and his chief advisor Dino Jalal, he went a long way towards restoring Indonesia's first among equal status in ASEAN, and I think it's standing with the likes of the United States and China. How would you describe Indonesian foreign policy during your time there, particularly in terms of the region's geopolitics? Yeah. Look, I think the starting point has to be a feeling of confidence that began to demonstrate itself as a result of Indonesia's transition to becoming a pretty well-functioning democracy, not perfect by any means, but that was a foundational issue for SBY. He did his doctorate in the United States. He was essentially an outward-looking president. And so I think he brought, you know, after some dark periods and then some pretty chaotic periods, he brought a pretty stable approach to, to regional and international diplomacy. I think that confidence really manifested itself in the way in which Indonesia approached things like membership of the G20, approached its renewed 
leadership role within ASEAN and approached other issues. I've mentioned regional cooperation with Australia on issues like counter-terrorism and so on. SBY strongly directed that sort of effort. And to him, it was a really positive thing that Indonesia was there showing a lead. It didn't always amount to very much. They had ambitions to do something, for example, about the Israel-Palestine conflict. That came to nothing because essentially they didn't put enough sort of hard work into establishing a proper process that would get them anywhere. But there's no doubt that SBY had his own view and was ready to stand up for it on things, for example, like Australian and other membership of the East Asia Forum. There'd been opposition to that. SBY was on side for his own reasons. And uh, so he was able to carry the day on a number of those quite, quite serious issues, including ones of great importance to Australia. You've mentioned <coughs> the... SBY's interest in democracy as a theme of mm. his foreign policy, particularly, I think, in terms of trying to project Indonesia as a model Muslim-majority democracy. Yeah. One can talk about the ASEAN Charter and mm. the role that Indonesia played in <clears throat> introducing some important clauses going to democracy and human rights in that context. His critics, on the other hand, would say that this was more about diplomatic form than substance. And they point to some illiberal backslidings in, in, in Indonesia during his presidency, especially his second term. Now, what was your assessment at the time and how much of a legacy do you think he did leave in this area? Yeah. Look, there's certainly a legacy and it's certainly a good legacy. That 10 years of his presidency was significant, both for the direct election of the president, but also for a proliferation of elections across the country, hundreds of elections at national provincial and local level. And I would say a quite remarkable level of voter turnout, a quite remarkably low level of disputation about court results. So in terms of a functioning electoral democracy, that I think was a very strong legacy. That has since been undermined to some extent, or at least threatened. There have been threats to undermine it by traditional forces who are trying to, in effect, get back some of the power that has been sent out to the provinces and sent out to people through the electoral process. Electorally, I think the SBY legacy was a strong one. In other ways, you'd say what we would regard as elements of, of democracy, that is a properly functioning government accountable to the, to the people, a government not subject to corrupt or other influences, a government which permits, indeed encourages freedom of the press. There was certainly, I think, some progress during SBY's term, but some backsliding as well. His second term was a disappointment, a disappointment to many people when, apart from I'd say an element of lethargy and self-satisfaction in his approach to things on elements like support for the Corruption Eradication Commission, support for human rights. He was disappointing. And I'd say that has actually got worse uh, since the SBY period. Now, this brings us, I think, on to a topic you discussed earlier too, which was Papua. And one of his achievements in office was the peace deal that ended the Aceh. Mm -hmm conflict in August of 2005. But he was not so successful in this sense when it came to Papua. What else should he have done to address this problem? Yeah. Look, when I presented credentials to SBY, I said two things to him. Essentially, 
that Australia would be there to work with Indonesia on follow-up to the Aceh tsunami and that we would do major things in cooperation with Indonesia. And I mentioned that we would, for example, be building two and a half thousand high schools around Indonesia, including in Aceh. He was staggered by that fear and referred to it again and again in encounters with Australians. So Aceh was, in effect, gave me one of the things that I could talk with SBY about early on in my time. Papua was a much less happy issue. The second thing I said to him when I presented credentials was that without any doubt, we would have dealings about Papua because that was the nature of democracy in Australia and interest groups who had their own views about things and indeed the Australian government's views from time to time about human rights and other issues. But I, I told him that he could be absolutely assured that Australia had a strong interest in the territorial integrity of Indonesia. That absolutely, certainly and forever would apply to the Papuan provinces. Well, within a few months, Australia had granted a refugee status to 43 Papuan asylum seekers. It was a very difficult period. It ended up well because we were able to come to an agreement on negotiation of the Lombok Treaty, which contains a very clear reference to the absolute commitment of both countries to the territorial integrity of the other and a commitment not to promote or support separatism in each country. I don't think that SBY during my time there had a bad record on Papua. His instructions to the security forces, the police and the army were quite clear that moderation and restraint were to characterise what they did. The record was imperfect, but I think that it was not a bad record at all. We've got to keep in mind that Papua is a highly sensitive issue for Indonesia. It's come a long way. The central government was giving much more money per capita to, to Papua than to other provinces. Ethnically, Melanesian governors were elected to in both places, and ethnically, Melanesian corruption processes replaced other corruption processes. So, you know, Papua is a mixed, very mixed story. SBY's part in that story, I don't think, is discreditable. Another issue that surfaced, or rather resurfaced, during the second half of your ambassadorship was irregular migration yeah. and, and people smuggling. How did the Indonesians view these developments and what impact did they have on relations during your time? Yeah, look, clearly irregular migration through and Indonesia to Australia has been a pretty constant preoccupation, first with Chinese arrivals in the late 90s, then with arrivals from the Middle East broadly defined the early 90s and the early part of the new century. So it has been a constant preoccupation. And I think that there have been some real positives that have flowed from that, things like the Bali process on regional migration. And then I'd say very strong cooperation between forces like the AFP, the Immigration Department, Customs, and so on. So there have been some positives as we've addressed that, that issue. One of the things that I had to do was really to make the point that this was not just a problem for Australia, but that there were problems for regional countries because of the attraction of people who, in many cases, were causing social and, and other problems within Indonesia and, and other countries, and that we had a common interest in working together. 
to try to counter this trade. I think that it certainly was an issue that led to some bad blood. And here, SBY, I think, showed up as a really gracious leader. On several occasions, two occasions, Prime Minister Rudd made a personal plea to SBY for Indonesia to either intercept a refugee boat and take the people off that boat or to receive refugees from an Australian customs vessel. And very much against the advice of, I would think, almost every other Indonesian, SBY acceded to that request. In the wash-up, there was, I think, bad blood caused by those decisions and the way in which we Australians became, I think, very importunate in our dealings with Indonesia was a pretty low moment, certainly in my ambassadorship. But we had a job to do when we did it. Well, you touched on, on counterterrorism cooperation earlier too. The reasons for this became tragically evident again on 17 July in 2009 when J.I. bombed the J.W. Marriott Hotel in Jakarta. Mm. Three Australians were among those killed in the attack, including an embassy colleague. How did this affect our cooperation on counterterrorism? Yeah. Well, I think it showed a number of things. One, the speed of the response uh, from both the Australian and the Indonesian side reflected very good understandings that had been developing between our security forces and the Indonesian counterparts since the first Bali bombing, the embassy bombing, the second Bali bombing, and in a variety of other ways in which our forces cooperated on counterterrorism. See, Australia and Indonesia did take a regional lead on counterterrorism issues. Together, we established the JCLEC Centre in Samarang, a counterterrorism centre, which was a highly successful centre aimed at training police and other forces in counterterrorism and related matters. And I think that the way in which both the Indonesian and Australian police forces cooperated was a model of, I would say, sort of joint respect. I mean, that cooperation worked, I would say, very well. It fell apart a bit when the Indonesians began to, to think that they weren't getting enough out of it. When, for example, they thought that our system was too slow in extraditing people that they wanted extradited from Australia. But on the whole, I think it was a very good period of cooperation between those police forces. Now, looking back, Bill, on your experience as ambassador now and what it taught you about Indonesia, how should Australia be dealing with its northern neighbour from now on? What should our priorities be? Look, I think we need a mature and a respectful relationship. And to put that into perspective, I think we can say that it's not respectful when we banned beef exports in 2011 without consultation with Indonesia, without, I think, any serious uh, thought about the implications for Australia, let alone our relations with Indonesia. So one of the most stupid decisions in our foreign policy in the post-war years. Not respectful, Australia. I don't think it was respectful when we went over the top in response to the execution of two of the Bali Nine. I think that it was Certainly very appropriate that we make representations, including at the highest level between the Prime Minister and the President, but the nature of Australian responses across the board was such as to 
cement harder than ever before the Indonesian disposition to proceed with those executions because we did not appear to be doing things with respect. I don't think it was respectful when, in response to suggestions, that there might be an Australian role in a regional response to the Rohingya crisis. Our then Prime Minister said, nope, nope, nope. This hardly signaled a serious examination of the way in which Australia might contribute to a process which we had benefited significantly from. So there are ways, including recent ways, where we have not handled that relationship in the way I think we should. And on some of those issues, I'd say, is this the way we would react if a similar situation arose with the United States, for example? And I think the answer is no. So I think a mature and respectful approach is one that we should adopt. I think that was the counterpoint to that is the respect that was very clear when we worked with Indonesians on issues like reform of their budget system, reform of their courts, reform of their transport, security and safety systems, their counter-terrorism, their immigration reforms, technical reforms. That all seemed to me uh, not headline stuff, but really important, what Gareth Evers used to call ballast for the relationship. In saying all that, I think it is, it's true to say that getting that sort of relationship can be much more difficult when you're dealing between two pretty vibrant democracies. Under President Suharto, if we got the old man on board, then the parliament, the press, everyone else would fall into line. Uh, Indonesia now, it doesn't happen that way, just as it doesn't happen in Australia. The press, opposition, parliamentarians, human rights groups, civil society will all have their own attitudes to things, and, and that's what we are used to. We're positive about that sort of stuff. It makes relations handling much more messy, necessarily so. And that's, that's part of the price we have to pay. It's part of the price we should be ready to pay for dealing as between democracies. The other major thing I, w- I would like to see is a very substantial increase in the sorts of things we do on a people-to-people basis. A lot of the things we've done in the past are, are absolutely the right sort of thing, but when you look at them and say, well, how much of a dent are they making on the impressions of 260 million Indonesians, uh, impressions of Australia and Australians, it's pretty localised, it'd be not very widespread. I think we've, in the last 10 or 15 years, we have done some good things. As a result of the uh, the building those two and a half thousand high schools in Indonesia, later increased under the Gillard government, we established a sister schools relationship, which has worked off and on, and things like COVID and so on have disrupted it. But that is a potential highway to much better knowledge on the part of thousands of kids in Indonesia and Australia about the other. The new Colombo plan, again, sending thousands, if not tens of thousands of young Australians to to Indonesia is a, a very good a good thing. And the more of that sort of stuff, the better. The government a couple of years ago announced a, a community grant scheme for giving funds to apex clubs and rotaries and, and friendship societies in Australia wanting to do development work in, in Indonesia. Again, I think that's a, a very good way, not only of exposing more Australians to Indonesia, 
but of gaining a bit of a constituency for the aid program in Australia, which needs all the friends it can get. I think that if we are serious about engaging with Indonesia, we really should be spending more money on these sorts of people-to-people exchanges. And this is nothing like a submarine. If the Australia-Indonesia Institute has a a budget, I think it's less than a million dollars. If you made that two or three million dollars through the sorts of things that that institute has been able to do in terms of leveraging government funds into much larger amounts in, I think, a pretty imaginative way, that would be a very good thing to, uh, to do. Well, Bill, you're a man of my own heart on that. And thank you so much again for your time today. It's been a pleasure, David. That's all we have time for today on Policy, Guns and Money. We look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Thanks for listening.